Andre Fauchon and Terry Stotts. Architects, John LaFoy and Desmond Muirhead. TV, Frank Tricanian, John Dare, Mitch Sado, Pat Summerall, and Ben Wright. Medical, Dr. Alan Martin and Dr. Cheryl Sampson. Fashion, Jan Strimple. Finally, a special thank you to Glenn Greenspan of Augusta National, Doc Griffin, Scott Tolley of Golden Bear, Jim Donovan Literary, Peter Gethers and Amy Scheib of Villard, and to Cheryl, Clay, and John. Introduction Charles de Clifford Roberts, Jr. sat in his apartment on Park Avenue and East 61st, a 74-year-old man with a polished scalp, blue eyes, and a whiskey-reddened nose. Never an imposing man physically, five-nine in his prime, Roberts had shrunk with age, surrendering about an inch. He drank a glass of burgundy in the late afternoon, and as he surveyed his domain, he moved his head in a bird-like way, trying to choose the right view through his trifocals. His apartment building didn't impress much either, just a fourteen-story brown brick rectangle with a plain-jane facade. New York City had hundreds just like it, but 535 Park Avenue was a prestigious address and expensive. Two uniformed doormen attended the entrance, and Central Park loomed just two blocks to the west. Roberts could go to his window, incline his head to the left, and if he wished to, see huge elms and oaks, prematurely crimson and orange, in the cold fall of 1968. Roberts sat alone. Once he'd been a social dynamo in his adopted hometown. His days between the wars and after World War II had been filled with business lunches and golf games at either of his two clubs, Blind Brook and Deepdale near New York City, or at Maidstone or National Golf Links a hundred miles away on Long Island. At night he played, expertly, in the Two-Cent Bridge Club. From time to time he took in a fight at Madison Square Garden. Now, with so many of his cronies dead or retired to a warmer place, he didn't go out much. He missed Bob Jones the most. Robert Tyre Bobby Jones, Jr. had been the second brightest star in the glittering golden age of sports, only Babe Ruth shone more brightly, and Clifford Roberts carried his spears. Other men's egos shrunk in the face of greatness, but Roberts's swelled. For years he counted on constant telephone and letter contact with Jones, his partner, his friend, his hero. Together they'd founded the Augusta National Golf Club and created the Masters. Later they'd gone into other business together. Now they rarely spoke. Disease had trapped Jones in his white-columned mansion on Tuxedo Road in Atlanta. A rare neurological disorder had made his spine as brittle and weak as an old stick and it had curled his hands into unfeeling claws. Jones lived in a wheelchair or in his bed. Someone had to light his cigarettes for him, and the only way he could sign his name was by grasping a tennis ball skewered with a pen. Roberts had recently told Jones that he no longer looked well enough to perform the traditional chat with the new Masters champion on TV after the tournament. This was true enough, Jones looked ghastly, but his feelings had been deeply hurt at having it pointed out. Jones excused himself from the telecast. For almost forty years, Jones proposed and Roberts disposed 
but time and decay had flipped their relationship upside down. Now Roberts was telling Jones what to do. Together they had started the golf course in 1932, then the tournament in 1934, and had made both grow beyond anyone's expectations, especially their own. Jones was president of the club, Roberts was chairman. Jones, cerebral, graceful, well-educated, and above all enormously popular, provided the enterprise's guiding light. Roberts, whose formal education ended upon his graduation from a dinky high school in South Texas, was Jones's antipode. One Augusta National member referred to him as our designated bastard. Yet everything this oddly complimentary couple did together worked, including Joe Roberts, Incorporated, the company they formed to bottle Coca-Cola in South America. Pepsi couldn't keep up in Uruguay and Brazil, and the pesos and cruzeros poured in. Thrilled to work with a man he idolized, Roberts gloried in their spectacularly successful early ventures, but even better ones beckoned. In 1948, the year Jones was diagnosed with syringomyelia and began his long, slow decline, Roberts met General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was to World War II what Jones had been to golf. One was born to command, the other to soldier, and they formed an immediate bond. Within months of their meeting, the general joined Augusta National, told Roberts to call me Ike, and began to consider him one of his leading advisors and perhaps his closest friend. Within a few more months, Eisenhower received a staggering half-million-dollar advance for a book on the war in Europe. Roberts, the ultimate insider, helped arrange both the huge payment from Doubleday and the sales-boosting serialization of the book in the New York Herald Tribune. He, Eisenhower, promptly handed the money over to me, Roberts later recalled proudly, and asked me to put it in income securities for him. Roberts brokered stocks for Reynolds & Company, a New York investment banking firm. He owned one-sixth of the company, and he was good at it. Eisenhower's portfolio quadrupled over the next fifteen years, with minimal risk. In one of his best gambits, Roberts got the general into Gulf Oil at $60 in 1949. The stock raced up to $95 a share within two years, then split two for one. Ike, along with several dozen other Augusta National members, also invested in Joe Roberts. With Jones in decline, the pairing of Ike and Cliff solidified. Four years after they met, Roberts's wonderful new friend was elected President of the United States. Further glorious adventures unfolded. Fundraising, vacations, card games, conventions, campaigns, golf, and intimate counsel, all with or for the most powerful man on earth. Roberts hung a pair of pajamas and a toothbrush in the White House for eight years, and the staff at the presidential mansion came to refer to the Red Room as Mr. Roberts's bedroom. Ike, in turn, visited Augusta so frequently that in 1953 Roberts arranged for the construction of a residence for his friend, the president, on the club grounds. The day after Ben Hogan won the Masters that April, Eisenhower flew into Augusta and held his grandson David's hand as they watched a crew pour the foundation for his new house. Because Eisenhower liked to fish, in the fall of 1949 Roberts built him a pond, not more than a sculled nine-iron from where the future first hacker's house would stand. 
Store-bought bluegill and black bass soon swam in the shady little lagoon. No subject was out of bounds between them. At least twice during the first presidential campaign, Roberts wrote to Eisenhower about religion. Several friends urge me to advise you to join a church, Roberts wrote, although he believed Ike's independence from formal affiliation with a particular denomination was an asset politically rather than a liability. Abraham Lincoln's parents were Baptists, Roberts informed Eisenhower, and Mary Todd Lincoln, his wife, had been Episcopalian, but Lincoln attended a Presbyterian church. Soon thereafter, Ike began gracing a pew. He never missed a Sunday at Reed Memorial Presbyterian over the scores of weekends he spent in Augusta. Roberts, on the other hand, didn't attend. Some think he was an atheist, recalls an Augustan who worked closely with the club chairman for many years. At least, he never set foot in a church here. Dear Cliff, Eisenhower wrote in February 1951, Anglo-Saxon men do not spend much time telling each other face to face anything of their mutual affection and regard, he began, then described at length his appreciation of his friend's thoughtfulness, devotion, and attention to the growth of the Eisenhower family fortune. The already profound friendship between Ike and Roberts grew even deeper during the presidential years. When John F. Kennedy moved into the White House in 1961, Eisenhower departed for his farmhouse in Pennsylvania and for Palm Springs in the Southern California desert. From his most recent visit to Ike and Mamie, Roberts knew his dear friend had lost his vitality. By Mar